Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Natural gas may be the most controversial of all fossil fuels. On one hand, natural gas has been heralded as a lower carbon alternative to coal as a fuel for electricity generation. At the same time, natural gas-fired generators have proven themselves to be a reliable backup for intermittent wind and solar power, and gas is viewed as an enabler of an increasingly renewables-based electric grid. Yet natural gas is nonetheless a fossil fuel whose global consumption is on the rise even as a growing number of countries are working to zero out carbon emissions from their energy systems within the coming two decades. So, how are we to treat natural gas? Is it a clean fuel and a durable bridge to a low-carbon future? Or is gas a remnant of a fossil fuel-dependent past that itself must be phased out quickly if we are to avoid the worst impacts of climate change? This is a question that industry, investors, regulators, and many others are urgently grappling with as billions of dollars of new gas infrastructure projects are being decided. Here to examine present and future demand for natural gas is my guest, Peter Frazier. Peter heads the Gas, Coal, and Power Markets Division at the International Energy Agency. His work includes the IEA outlooks used by governments and business to understand the direction of the global energy industry. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Peter, today, natural gas fuels about 40% of electricity generation here in the United States. And that's driven largely by the fact that domestic U.S. gas is is very inexpensive. Is natural gas generally as cost competitive and widely used outside of the United States? Well, the United States and North America more generally uh, does enjoy some of the least expensive natural gas in the world. Uh, the only other area which has cheaper, cheaper natural gas is places in the Middle East, which also uh, often as a byproduct of oil production, have a lot of natural gas. Elsewhere, it's a different story. Natural gas in, in Europe, for example, is, uh, significant, is more expensive than particularly the soft coal that they use there called lignite. Uh, but it also, also gets, a, gets a leg up because also in Europe we see a lot of carbon pricing and quite significantly high carbon prices. So natural gas in the power sector at least is enjoying some competitive advantage over coal there. But in where most of the world's energy demand is growing, which is in developing Asia, to some extent Africa, uh, Latin America, in those regions natural gas is generally speaking a more expensive fossil fuel than coal. And as a result, uh, when it comes to the power sectors of China, of India, of Indonesia, to just take three three large examples, uh, coal is a much less expensive option to use uh, than natural gas. And natural gas has are growing in all those uh, economies, uh, but not playing the same role in the power sector that we see here in the United States. So, so in Asia, is, is natural gas being used as a replacement for coal? Uh, for, you know, in, in the case of coal to gas switching, which we've seen so much of here in the United States, mm-hmm. or is that higher price of gas preventing uh, gas from, from replacing coal? Yeah. Well, it's being used in a more limited extent. 
China, when it has it's gone through its enormous economic expansion over the last couple of decades, also used coal, was using coal in a lot of applications that in North America we don't see. For example, for uh, in industry and in, in home heating. Uh, so the Chinese in the last few years have made a very big effort to substitute out uh, of coal in, in the, both the domestic sector and in the industry sector. And so we do see substitution there, but not in the power sector or not very much. There's some opportunities for combined heat and power and natural gas. But generally speaking, uh, generally speaking, we don't see a, a big shift to gas in the power sector, uh, with these some exceptions in, say, urban areas where closing a coal plant and replacing it with a gas plant can improve air quality. Now, there is well-known tension around the role that natural gas should play going forward, uh, particularly given con conflicting views uh, of gas. Uh, it's either uh, an enabler of a low-carbon grid, or alternately, it is a climate liability. Can you talk about this tension of, of how big a role natural gas can and should play in the, in the energy system? And, and where does this debate stand today? Well, I can, what I can tell you is that uh, it's a tension that we had to address in our recent report, Net Zero by 2050, a roadmap for the global energy sector. Now, as you may be aware, this report, this report uh, tries to map out a way to get to net zero emissions by 2050 in a manner that's consistent with a 1.5 degree uh, C warming by the year 2100. And to do that is actually two challenges. First challenge, of course, is to substitute by 2050 all those fossil fuels with non-fossil non fuel or else to cap capture and store some of the emissions from the CO2. But there's a second one. It's not good enough to actually keep going as we're going and then in the year 2050 change over to non-fossil. We have to start cutting emissions now. Uh, so in the short run, we have to do other things beyond substituting, say, renewable for non-renewable. And that includes a, a, a growing role in the short term for natural gas. So out to 2025, 2030, natural gas demand actually grows as it's being substituted for coal or for oil. But beyond 2030, going to 2040, 2050, natural gas, like other fossil fuels, has to be itself be substituted for renewables in the electricity sector, uh, uh, be substitute for low carbon electricity uh, in the end use sector or with other low carbon gases such as hydrogen. So in the short run, it does contribute to reducing emissions, but in the long run, it itself has to be replaced. You know, I wanted to ask you just for a moment to, to take us back a decade or a decade and a half or so, and, mm -hmm. and talk about that initial promise of natural gas, particularly here in the United States when the shale gas revolution really got underway around, you know, 2005, 2010, that, that window. Can you tell us a little bit about the environmental promise that natural gas brought along with it? Well, indeed, a decade ago, uh, uh, we, IEA wrote a special report talking about the golden Golden, uh, golden age of natural gas and the golden rules for the golden age of natural gas. And I think looking back on it over the past, uh, past decade, we can say that golden age did happen in the United States. 
And we saw that a lot of the benefits that could have happened did happen in the U.S., particularly its substitution for coal uh, that we've seen quite extensively that counts for the majority of the emission savings that you've seen in the United States, which the United States has, has cut in absolute terms emissions more than any other country. Um, so, and we've seen also the United States, which was on the verge of becoming an importer of natural gas, become a significant exporter of natural gas. And natural gas, as a result, has been making greater penetration into markets, not just in Europe, but particularly into developing Asia, in no small part because of the increased uh, role of U.S. shale. But that said, elsewhere in the world, uh, we, did, we didn't see the big developments in shale that we saw in the U.S. There's some additional shale in South America, also in China, but we did not see the, the same growth uh, that we thought might, might be able to be reproduced in, uh, in the, that we saw in the United States. So as a result, uh, there was this, this big, success, big success in the U.S., but the, the success uh, wasn't duplicated. The other factor behind that, of course, is the progress we've made on renewables. Uh, Ten years ago, we wouldn't have said that uh, solar was the, was the cheapest electricity that you could find uh, in many uh, to, way to make electricity anywhere in many of the developing countries. But that's now the case in a place like India, a place like China, solar PV is che cheaper than making it even with coal, never mind gas. So the growth of renewables has also affected strongly the future of natural gas. We see a much smaller role for gas in the power sector in particular, because uh, as, as, a, uh, as a complement to renewables indeed, but you don't need a lot of natural gas to play that complementary role. And of course, there are now new uh, resources such as batteries and other things which can also help uh, help uh, the power system in addition to gas. So looking forward, um, you, you just talked about some of the things that may influence the demand for gas generation, the, the rise of renewables and much less expensive renewables. We've got battery storage, which is really just starting to take off. Are there any other factors uh, that might be important influence, in influencing the demand for gas going forward? What are the, the key other factors we might take into, into account? On the upside for gas, there's gas being used as a component of industrial growth. So we, we look out the next few years and we see industries in the short run just recovering from the pandemic, but in the longer run, uh, continuing to grow. Uh, a number of them will be using natural gas. So that's a, a source of growth. Second, in the, again, in, if there's a strong policy push to cut emissions quickly, for example, by closing coal plants, which we see a number of countries now have policies to do so and to do so in the, in the next few years. In the short run, that's good for gas. Although we'll see a big growth in renewables as well, uh, gas will have, to fill, will have to fill part of that gap. So that's a, that's a second area. But on the other hand, uh, policies that ex accelerate renewables even faster than say other, say coal plants close, will actually uh, increase the squeeze on gas fire generation and limit the possibilities there. 
So that's one of the, the big negative things in the short run. And of course, if uh, certain countries take measures to limit uh, gas growth, for example, in the Netherlands now, uh, a new building cannot be connected to the gas grid. Uh, so if you have more, more uh, jurisdictions to, uh, implementing policies like this, that's obviously going to be negative for gas. You know, one of the things that struck me in looking through some of the uh, data in recent IEA reports is how quickly energy demand and demand for natural gas has recovered from the worst days of the the COVID uh, economic downturn and, and lockdowns in many countries. And in fact, natural gas has already surpassed uh, demand from 2019, pre-COVID. Uh, in, in your view, this quick rebound of natural gas, what does it say about the role of gas in the immediate term? Um, you know, how essential is it you know, versus other options in the immediate term as countries have had the opportunity to make some choices potentially coming out of the crisis to switch to other sources of, of fuel? Well, I think in the immediate term, we well, you know, gas globally dropped 1.9% last year, actually was somewhat less than the other fossil fuels. Uh, in the case of oil, it was closer to you know, 8% and coal 5%. Gas was only 1.9%. Um, but there were two things holding it down last year. Number one was, of course, the pandemic, which was affecting, every, affecting all the fuels and all, all the energy demand. But the second thing, less appreciated, less important, but still still as significant, was it was actually a rather warm winter in the Northern Hemisphere last year. So we had a significantly colder one in the Northern Hemisphere this year. So we're actually seeing that part of the bounce back. And so we see a bounce back to going to 3.6% growth we now expect for the year 2021 over 2020. And for the most part, uh, in a year, you don't uh, this, this change doesn't happen on a dime. Uh, if anything, it's, it's, you're really using your existing infrastructure to, uh, to do this. So if anything, um, if there were policy changes, it would probably, you know, uh, say on the climate side, in the short run, it would probably be good for gas because they'd probably be closing coal plants sooner. And indeed, we did see some, uh, some plants close in places in Europe, for example, in Spain, where they closed several coal plants ahead of schedule in Germany earlier this year, where they closed some coal plants earlier than expected. Uh, so that actually is, is somewhat favorable for gas in, in the very immediate term. Earlier this month, uh, the IEA uh, released its gas demand outlook for the coming three years. And that report forecasts substantial growth in natural gas demand well beyond what can be accommodated if climate targets are to be kept in view. What precedent does this set for the future of both meeting climate targets as well as gas demand if we're already seeing that gas is exceeding uh, what's necessary to meet climate targets, particularly when we have very aggressive 2030 targets? Now, for example, in Europe, uh, which is you know, setting out to, to reduce its uh, emissions by 55% by the end of this decade. No, that, that's... Uh, that our report that we issued issued uh, a short time ago, trying to make it clear that there were the growth was being driven by a couple of factors. And on the one hand, it was this increase uh, in economic economic growth, industri industrial production, which was increasing gas demand. 
And so you might, that's the part, you know, we, we say overall is inconsistent that we want to start to substitute for, for cleaner options. But the other part of the gas growth was associated with uh, substitution, mainly for coal, but also for oil. And that part, that part of the growth is actually rather consistent with what we think a low carbon path has to follow in the short run. Again, we have to cut, start cutting the emissions now and the extent that gas is substituting for coal, that part doesn't, didn't concern us too much. It's this other bit that we, we, have, to, we have to focus on. And so how do we, how do we deal, deal with that? Um, in the short run, in, in, indus, well, in short run in industry, it's going to be some. It's going to be greater use of energy efficiency, and it's going to be starting to use uh, low carbon alternatives uh, to natural gas in that industry. Can you tell us a little bit about the potential of low carbon natural gas? Yes, certainly. Um, so, natural gas that, that we, we extract uh, comes much of it. Much of it comes from uh, oil uh, byproduct of oil production. As a, in its fossil form, but it can also be produced by a biological processes. It's methane, it's CH4. And so today we actually have a relatively small amount of, uh, of methane produced in this as a renewable resource. So to compare the units, it's about 5 billion cubic meters of methane produced in the world today compared to about 4,000 billion cubic meters that are produced of fossil natural gas. But there's a lot of room to, to increase that production. So that's an example of a low carbon gas. Um, second, and the one probably everyone's heard about, is uh, of course hydrogen. You can burn hydrogen like you can burn, burn uh, methane or natural gas. And so uh, that's something which is hardly used for that for that purpose today. Uh, hydrogen is produced, but it's mainly used in the oil refinery refinery sector. Uh, but you can use it uh, use it uh, as a as a fuel, uh, like you can natural gas. And indeed, one of the short term options uh, for companies wanting to reduce uh, the carbon content of their natural gas is not just to use biomethane, but also to inject some hydrogen. There are some limits as to how much you can do uh, because our, the burners in our equipment don't necessarily work if you have high concentrations of hydrogen. But at relatively low uh, blends at a few percent or so, uh, hydrogen can be mixed in with, with methane, with natural gas, and be used in our appliances uh, uh, quite safely and, at a, and producing less carbon. So those are, areas, uh, those are areas where people see a lot of growth. And they're... Interestingly, there are two ways to make uh, hydrogen. One way, and the way I think that will in the long run become predominant, uh, to make hydrogen in a low carbon way is to, make, is to use, start with water, use electricity to split the hydrogen with the, from the oxygen and use that hydrogen. That's called, sometimes called green hydrogen. And over time, we think that will become an, uh, a, a relatively inexpensive way to make hydrogen but it's not inexpensive today. The other way, which is also a low carbon way to make hydrogen, is to use actually use natural gas, which is the way that it's made today, but instead of allowing the CO2 from that process to escape, to allow it to be captured. And we think up in our net zero 2050 case, that even in, in 2050, uh, uh, maybe 38% of the hydrogen, low carbon hydrogen that we'll be using in 2050 
would come from this process of natural gas with carbon capture and storage. So at the end of this year, uh, the Glasgow summit uh, will take place where countries will um, present their updated uh, nationally uh, determined contributions or their climate targets. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there a potential for uh, the outcome of that uh, conference, the summit, to impact global gas demand if uh, countries are particularly aggressive with their 2030 uh, carbon targets? Well, indeed, uh, with, uh, with aggressive targets, uh, it's pretty clear, and again, going back to our, our, 20, our Net Zero in 2050 report, uh, that, that there are two things that will need to happen that will affect the future for natural gas. And it really does reflect, number one, uh, we're very clear uh, in our report that a lot of coal plants will need to close relatively quickly. That's a big challenge because most of those coal plants are now in developing countries, not in advanced economies. And the cost of, con- of changing your power systems from ones that depend on coal to other, other fuels and renewables mainly, uh, it's, it also requires a lot of finance. So we have to make sure that stuff can be financed. But that's, that's one element that actually will have an effect on the renewables growth and the closure of coal plants have a very mixed picture on natural gas because on one hand, a much higher renewables growth that we're going to need uh, should push uh, gas down further. And I expect to see a lot of that uh, decrease in the developed economies. Whereas in, in the developing economies, uh, we'd see that the renewables growth, renewables growth is actually reducing coal won't have as much an effect on natural gas in, in those economies. You know, talking about that investment going forward uh, uh, in, in natural gas, and, uh, recently in the United States, we've seen a wariness to invest in gas infrastructure. And that's out of fear that projects will become obsolete and that those infrastructure assets will become stranded. Uh, and for example, that recently the Atlantic Coast Gas Pipeline project was canceled uh, due to some pushback, and and the the um, the sponsors of that project, Duke and Dominion uh, Energy Companies, determined that it really wasn't any longer worth the risk or the investment. So, to what extent? Um, is concern that natural gas investment may be not a good long-term solution and that assets built today may be quickly stranded. Uh, To what extent is that an issue? uh, Do you see it in North America as well as in the rest of the world? Well, it's certainly an important important question because as as, as, uh, governments start to grapple with the implications of a net zero pledge, uh, whether there is room for gas to grow. And uh, in short, in the more developed economies, there, the answer is no. Uh, the, if there's going to be growth, it's going to be more in developing, developing economies. Uh, so what we'll see, uh, what we'll, we'll see is, is more, more jurisdictions asking the kinds of questions that the, these pipeline developers were asking. And it, we also see it in Europe, for example, today, uh, there were there's a sort of European level planning process to determine new gas infrastructure, mainly to deal with security of supply issues rather than for growth. 
but of course, even those kinds of investments are being challenged and saying, well, why are we investing in gas infrastructure? Because we, don't, we won't need fossil natural gas in the future. So part of the answer to that one is, but it's, to be frank, it's difficult to say exactly how much you're going to need, is that we may need other forms, that Europe might need other forms of gas in the future, and this pipeline system might be useful for that. If you, you know, build the right, right kind of pipes and the right kind of pipeline, you may want to make it ready to take, say, hydrogen, which might require some technical changes. So, but, so that debate is also happening. It's happening in a different way in, in Africa, for example just to take quite a different example. There, gas isn't used very much, but you have countries like Nigeria, uh, Mozambique, uh, where there's potential for gas development. And they see it, They at one point, they would have seen gas as a big export opportunity. Uh, but now they're taking a more critical look at it to see if they can use the gas domestically uh, to substitute, in many cases, for oil, uh, which is being used in, the power, in power generation and other things. Where does it fit relative to, say, renewables or other, other sources of energy in the future? Or how can they monetize this, these natural resources for the benefit of their country? So there's a, even there, there's a, there's a change in perspective from, you know, from the more aggressive targets that we're seeing. You know, a, a, another point on these uh, stalled projects. Uh, last year, two proposed European LNG terminals uh, that would have received LNG from the United States were canceled over the con- over concerns that the gas was too dirty. Was that specific to U.S. gas being too dirty or gas being too dirty generally? Well, certainly there's been a debate. There was a debate in Europe in part because the U.S. had declined to implement certain regulations related to the control of methane emissions. I uh, understand that that, uh, that position has been reversed under the current administration. So I don't know if that will, will change. I don't know if that, that will change European views. Because certainly uh, the, upstream, uh, the upstream and indeed through the entire value chain of natural gas, there are opportunities to reduce emissions. And reducing emissions of methane uh, actually are, are among the most cost-effective things you can do uh, because the methane can be, of course, if it's not leaked into the atmosphere, it can be gathered and has a price it can be sold. And so we think 40% of the methane leaks worldwide in the oil and gas operations can actually be recovered uh, can actually be, be recovered at no net cost because of the value that they would get from selling selling the gas. So I think that's that that's that's the kind of issue there. But I, what we see is the gas industry, not just not just the production side, but also the transportation side. That's both the pipelines and you know the shipping for LNG. Uh, also looking at looking at how they can reduce uh, emissions, you know, not leaks of methane and other and more efficient utilization, such as using electricity, whereas before they would use natural gas. Uh, to cut their emissions of the entire path. And we, we expect that to play a bigger role in the future. Okay, Peter, so, so a final question for you here, and this is the uh, $60 million question, okay? Uh, in your view, is the gas bridge uh, that is so often been spoken about uh, going to be a short one or a long one? What do you think? Well... 
I think it depends, and it depends, number one, on government policies. Setting a net zero target is great. It sets direction. It inspires. But it won't be enough on its own to actually turn around emissions of, of CO2 and other greenhouse gases to get us down to net zero in 2050 or in any other date. There need to be supporting policies to do this. So the length of the gas bridge will really depend on the government's government policies to reduce fossil fuel emissions. My guess is that if, if those policies are in place, actually in the short term, things aren't, the gas demand could even increase for, a few, for some few years. And then we'd have it, but then from that point, gas has to drop just like the other fossil fuels need to do in order to get us on a sustainable path. Peter, thanks for talking. My pleasure. Today's guest has been Peter Fraser, head of the Gas, Coal and Power Markets Division at the International Energy Agency. Visit the Climate Center for Energy Policy's website for our latest podcast episodes, policy digests and blogs. You can keep up with news and research from the center by subscribing to our newsletter on our homepage or by following us on Twitter. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now and have a great day. Thank you.